Well, it's a joy to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we're at today. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, we go verse by verse, passage by passage, really, through the New Testament and often the Old as well. But right now we've been in Ephesians for about a year, and we're looking to bring out the meaning of the text to make the case that the Apostle here makes, and particularly on how we ought to live, and of course, apply that through the message, and give examples and illustrations where needed. But the goal is to explain it, and to apply it. We need to not just be entertained, of course. The Bible often will will be great reading, but we're not here to entertain. Sometimes the sermon can be passionate, But again, not here to entertain. We're here to look at God's Word. We're here to see what it has to say. We're here to do it, to obey it, to live it out. And so we come now to parents. In Ephesians 6 verse 4, we've been looking at different members of the family and what their roles and responsibilities are. Depending on where we're at, we've been stepping on some toes. We've been looking at our own lives. Last week, we looked at children obey your parents. And now we flip it around and look at parents raising your children up in the Lord. Instructions for Christian parents. Only one verse, but it has a lot packed into this one verse, as Paul often does. Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. One verse. And yet, If we do this, we're following the Lord, parents. We're doing what He wants us to do with our children. And whether you already have children, someday we'll have children, have already had children, and need to help others and teach them, this verse is important. It's important to the church. That's why He wrote it to the Ephesian church. I don't have to tell you we have a parenting problem in our world, in our country, even amongst Christians. The British King Edward VIII was once asked in the 1950s, what impressed him most about visiting America? Here's what he said. The thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. If that was true then, in the 1950s, it's certainly true now. He's just saying what he saw. We've come to the point in our culture where parenting has completely been undermined by worldly thinking, by secular philosophy even in the Christian home. Parenting's become a a free-for-all. Just figure out what works for you and maybe try that one day and try something different the next day. It's become a section in the bookstore. Parenting. Different psychologists, different philosophies. One Christian parent joked, I once had no children and six different parenting philosophies. Now I have six children and no parenting philosophies. This is even a problem outside of Christianity. When the world stands up and takes notice of a problem that we know is addressed in Scripture, We might take notice as well. Popular psychologist Jordan Peterson notes in his book, 12 Rules for Life, that what he sees in parenting is a huge problem. He says modern parents are simply paralyzed by fear that they will no longer be liked or even loved by their children if they chastise them for any reason. They want their children's friendship above all and are willing to sacrifice respect to get it. This is not good. A child will have many friends, but only two parents, if that. And parents are more, not less than friends. Another psychologist, Leonard Sachs, who's written a book called The Collapse of Parenting, tells stories about parents who let their kids decide everything. The kids decide what to eat, what to drink, what to wear, how to spend free time, even where to go to school. 
Over the past three decades, he says, there has been a massive transfer of authority from parents to kids. This transfer of authority is due to the range of problems, he says. Over-medicated kids, low educational standards, fragile undergrads in college. Of course, we know sin in the heart, total depravity. We're all born with it. And it manifests itself even in young children. And of course, the world's trying to address this and look at this and help parents. And there's many millions of dollars being spent on books out there. But even those in a worldly system recognize that what we should recognize as Christians, folly is bound up in the heart of a child. That's what the proverb says. Folly, sin, foolishness. And yet, God's not left us without instructions. He's not addressed the husband and the wife and the child without instructions to the parents here. We've been given the Holy Spirit. As Christian parents, we've been given the Holy Spirit. When we've been given the Word of God, and with those, we're equipped. We're equipped to raise our children. We're equipped. Sometimes we don't feel like it. Sometimes we we think we need extra philosophies and ideas outside the Bible. And there might be occasional helps and tools that we come across that are not against Scripture. But the Bible tells us right here what we're supposed to do. And Paul says to Christians, back in Ephesians 5 verse 18, he started this idea. He said, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled. The best translation is be filled by the Spirit. As Christians, we're to be filled passively, we're to get out of the way and be filled by the Spirit's work. And if we cross-reference Colossians 3.20, I said that we understand the Holy Spirit is filling us with the Word of Christ, which richly dwells in us. We want it to richly dwell in us. And so the Spirit's filling us. Well, how? Then he goes about giving instructions on how to do that. How do we let the Spirit fill us? Paul gives a list, 5.19-21. through 21. He talks about singing, singing to one another. That's a type of admonishment in the church setting. He talks about singing in our hearts to the Lord. He talks about giving thanks to God. And then he says there at the end in verse 21, that we're to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And what he has in mind there with submission is different roles and relationships. And so he starts now on those. He's still talking about that here in chapter 6 verse 4. These different relationships. First marriage, the wife submits to her husband. And the husband submits to Christ as he loves his wife like Christ loves the church. Then children are to submit and obey their parents as their Lord Jesus has commanded them. And now we turn to look at parents. How are Christian parents to bring up and to raise their kids? Well, like Christ has commanded. And really, if I could sum it up before I even get into it, by teaching them and expecting them to obey Scripture. We got to know scripture, we got to teach them scripture, and we got to correct them when they disobey. Paul's going to give three commands, three instructions for Christian parents on how to raise up children for the glory of God. There's really a positive and a negative here, and the positive at the end has two parts to it. So three points to the sermon. How do we fix this problem that's out there in our world? Or how do we get started on the right foot if your child is young? We obey the scriptures, and here in this verse, he sums it up in one sentence. He starts off by saying, fathers, which brings us to our first point. Do not provoke your children to anger. Number one, how do you raise up children according to the Lord's instructions here? Do not provoke your children to anger. And he starts by addressing fathers, the leader of the family. We've already looked at how the husband is the leader of the wife. The wife submits to the husband. Well, he comes to fathers here because fathers are supposed to do the training and the discipline. 
And they often delegate much of that to the mother, of course, if the father's not there, if the father's working. But he addresses fathers as the leader. But don't think, mothers, that this verse doesn't apply to you as well. I mean, these same principles apply to you. As the father leads the family, he often expects the mother, his wife, to do these same things in his absence. So really, we could say parents here. But of course, God holds the man responsible for his family. Not for what his children grow up and do, but for what he's doing right now in the home. That's why it says in 1 Timothy that a man can't even be an elder. He can't be a leader in the church unless he manages his household well. Why? Because the man is expected to lead his family in that way. And it's the same in the church. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Children are the same ones he mentioned back in 6.1 when he said children obey your parents. The Greek word is tekna. It indicates any child still in the home. The context here is any child still in the home. From the smallest child, from the, from the newborn even, up all the way through the late teens whenever they leave the home. Do not provoke. Do not stir up is the idea here. Don't stir them up to anger. Don't prod them. Don't try to make them angry just out of spite or fun. Any attitudes, any words, any actions that you might do which would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment or bitterness. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.21, Fathers, do not exasperate. So instead of provoke there, he uses do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. The word for their exasperate means to cause someone to react in a way that suggests acceptance of a challenge. Don't challenge them just to, to make them feel like they can't do it. Just to make them angry. Just to make them feel like they can't live up to your standards. Don't arouse and provoke their fear. Irritate them and bitter them. Now many children will say, well, every time, Dad, you tell me to do something I don't want to do, you're provoking. Children, we can't blackmail our parents. The Bible is clear what the word means. It means going above the boundaries that Scripture has set for parenting. That means a sinful tendency to cause your children to be angry just for the fun of it. Provoking. Think of a cattle prod going into the cattle over and over. But sometimes we do it as parents not realizing that we're doing it. Sometimes we're focused elsewhere. Sometimes we are provoking our children. And it's not necessarily because we enjoy it. It just happens as we neglect many of our duties as parents. So I want to give you a list of possible things that might be provoking, that will provoke if you do these things. I have 13 of them. 13 ways that parents provoke their children. First of all, a child-centered family. If a child grows up in a child-centered family and they get all the time what they want, when they want it, what's going to happen when you tell them no? What's going to happen when they grow up and you tell them no as a teenager? See, they've grown up thinking they're equal or higher than their parents and they're going to get very angry when you tell them no. You didn't intend to provoke them here, but essentially you did by the way you set up your home, fathers and even mothers. Child-centered family. Also number two, overprotection. Overprotection when, when they're young, this is called helicopter parenting. They can never fall. They can never get a scrape. They can never do anything that might cause them or might put them in a slightly dangerous position. Even playing outside has become an issue. When I was young and many of you, we could roam the whole town. It seems like now children only have a, a little postage stamp that they can go outside in and that's it. Overprotection. Not allowing enough freedom for your child to stumble and learn from their small mistakes. Of course, we don't want them to run out on the highway. But would it be okay if they just rode their bike down the street and maybe skint up their knee? 
with six boys in the home, we had to learn this a long time ago. You, you're not going to prevent that. They're going to scratch up, break bones, sometimes knock out teeth. We don't want that to happen, but that's always been part of growing up. And we can embitter them. We can anger them, provoke them by keeping them too pinned up. In fact, if it's ever a bad weather day with all the boys trapped in the house, that's a danger to mom and dad, especially to mom. We've got to let those kids make small steps as they get older and more and more larger steps that they might stumble in. We protect them for the big ones, but let's not overprotect. Thirdly, fathers, favoritism, favoring one child over the others. Don't have to say much about that, but if you have more than one child, then sometimes you tend to favor that one. Maybe that one's easier to get along with or easier to parent. And that's going to anger the other children. Number four, neglecting them. And it might be for what you would say is a godly reason. I've got to work. I've got to work a lot. How's this business ever going to go if I don't work all the time? Got to put in extra hours. Got to take that extra shift. Well, you neglect your children. There's only so much time in the day. And so if you're always working, or, or maybe it's hobbies, hunting, fishing, sports, games, TV, internet, reading, whatever it is, you're telling the child, that's more important. That's more important. And that will provoke them. Let's make sure we're spending the right amount of time with our kids, as much as we can, really. Physical abuse, of course, will provoke them. Number five, physical abuse. I'm not talking about spanking. We'll come to that in a bit. But hitting, knocking around, bruising, abusing them. Because they've upset your life, upset your day, upset something that you don't like. It's unacceptable. It should never happen, especially in the Christian home. More common probably is verbal abuse, number six. Scolding children harshly. Not biblical correction here, but scolding them harshly. Especially for doing small things. All of us as parents have probably done this at some point. And we've had to come to our children and ask for their forgiveness, hopefully. But don't verbally abuse your children. Call them names. Run them down. Constantly just telling them they're not good enough. Number seven, inconsistency and discipline. It's called hypocrisy. You're telling them to do something that you don't even do yourself. Do as I say, not as I do. It's kind of a joke, but it's really happening amongst parents. Let's not tell them how to live a godly life and correct them when they disobey, but then turn around and live an ungodly life ourselves. Children can spot that. They can spot hypocrisy. They're better at it sometimes than adults. Right? Adult, adults don't even want to see it when it's right in front of them sometimes. Children can spot it. And they can spot it when you're disciplining their sibling for something, and they get off scot-free or vice versa. It's inconsistent. They love consistency. Children thrive on consistency. That's why all the studies prove that children do better in a stable home. We know that to be true. That's how God set it up. But they thrive on consistency. The, the better the pattern, the more children will thrive. Be consistent in your discipline. Number eight, legalistic. Just being legalistic. Just making up all kinds of rules, telling them that, that these are God's laws when they're not in Scripture. Expecting them to, to obey your laws as if it's God's laws. Number nine, not asking for forgiveness when you sin. I mean, this is a sign of not even being a Christian. If you have raised your children for years and never once asked for their forgiveness, that's a sign. That's a bad sign. You've got to be asking them for forgiveness because you're not perfect. You're going to sin. You're going to be weak. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be tired. And that's the time when that one child that always aggravates you when you're tired and sick and don't feel well is going to come in and do something that really angers you. 
And you're going to blow up and you're going to have to say, I'm sorry. Shouldn't have said it. Shouldn't have spoken that way. Ask for forgiveness. Repent. Number 10, discouragement. All of these are discouraging to a child, but this particularly is constant nagging. Never building up. Never showing love. Always looking for something wrong to call out. Now kids, this is not your parent who points out when you've done something wrong. If you don't take the trash out today, your parent might point it out. And tomorrow, and the next day. That's not nagging. This sin here, discouragement, is just always finding something wrong. Never building up. Let's not do that. That can discourage the child. Number 11, lack of marital harmony. You don't think it matters what the children see in your marriage? Well, they're always watching. They're always listening. If they're in the room or maybe in the next room even, they're picking up on what's being said. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Bitterness in your life and in your marriage overflows out into your family. And your children pick up on that and they get bitter as well. They learn by example. They understand that, hey, mom and dad act like this. It must not be that big a deal. Marital harmony. You've got to have marital harmony and a good and godly marriage. Otherwise, you're teaching your children the opposite. Number 12, children get bitter and angry because it's modeled after them. You're a bad model. You're the one blowing up. You're the one getting angry. And hey, mom and dad do that. Why not me? They seem to get away with it. God hasn't struck them with lightning. And then lastly, 13, unrealistic expectations. Similar to discouragement, but this is when they're in sports or maybe an extracurricular activity. And they're not living up to the standard you set. You always wanted to have that life and now's their chance and you've given them everything. Why can't they do better? Why can't they excel? Why can't they be the perfect athlete or academic or perfect around all your friends? Why can't they be perfect? Why can't my kids just be perfect when I come to church? Well, we all want that, of course, as parents, but it doesn't happen. And how do we respond when it doesn't happen? Are we harsh? Are we provoking them to anger? So let's not provoke our children to anger, parents. There's, there's a better way that he's about to get to, but let's not be provoking. Prodding them always, making them angry. Your children will get angry with you for godly discipline. That's enough. Let's not go above and beyond that and sin against them. Number two. Don't provoke your children was number one. Number two, raise your children up in the Lord's training. Instead of that, he says, bring them up. So that's the verb here in this second part of the sentence. Bring them up. In general, the word means to provide food. In a general context, it's provide for physically. We looked at this when we talked about the wife who's being nourished and cherished. That word nourished is related to this word here. But in the context, he's not talking about food. He's talking about Physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. Not just the physical, but especially the, the spiritual and emotional needs. That's why the King James says nurture. You nurture a child, of course, you feed them, provide for them, clothes, a house. But more than that, he's going to say, bring them up in the way that the Lord wants you to bring them up. And so first of all, he says, in the discipline. The NASB says discipline. These two words can be a bit similar. So we want to dig a little deeper on this first word for discipline. It's really better translated training. Bring them up in the training. Paideia. Paideia is the Greek word. The act of providing guidance. 
for responsible living, upbringing, training, instruction. Mainly in the New Testament, though, it has the idea of physical discipline and correction. Train your children in how they should live and do so in a way that they're going to be corrected. They're going to be punished. Show them the right path. And when they don't do it, punish them. Or when they disobey and go the opposite direction. Now, a few times it's used for proactive discipling. So discipline really has a proactive and a corrective element. When we disciple people in a church, it's, it's a proactive. We're teaching the truth. Here's the truth. You need to obey it. And then sometimes it's corrective. You've disobeyed God's word. I need to call you out on that. Well, 2 Timothy 3.16 speaks of the proactive discipline. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training. That's the word paideia. Training in righteousness. So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God, the elder, the pastor, the group of elders. They're equipped to train the church, to disciple the church with scripture. And it's not only good for correcting, it's not only good for reproving and teaching in general, but for showing them how to live a righteous life. It shows you how to actually live it out. The Bible doesn't leave us without examples on that, without commands like Ephesians 6, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 4. How do I live this out? Paul's been telling us. So that's proactive. Showing your children how they're supposed to live. Showing them by example, showing them by scripture, and then doing what the scriptures say. That's a few times. Mostly in the New Testament, even back into Proverbs, is corrective discipline. When they don't do that, correct them. And correct them with physical punishment, corporal punishment. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to see this used a lot in Hebrews, both the noun and the verb. In the Bible, there's the noun here, paideia, and then there's the verb. The noun is the training, and the verb is to train. So both of these are used in Hebrews 12, where God is disciplining us, correcting us, training us. Does God punish by correction the Christian? I once had somebody tell me, God never punishes. He never corrects his children. I said, what do you do with Hebrews 12? He does. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. So this writer, the writer of Hebrews, speaking to the Hebrew people who have been tempted to reject the faith. And he says, you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline, the training of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Oh, God never physically does anything to us. He never puts obstacles in our life that would correct us, would he? It's just sort of verbal. It's just sort of through the words. No, scourging is a real thing. That's a whipping. Sometimes it means very serious whipping like Christ got, but other times it's just simply spanking. God does put things in our life. If we disobey him, it's not just verbal correction from others that are Christians in the, in the Bible, but God will actually do things in our life. He will bring things upon us to correct us, to make us stop and realize what's happening, that we're in sin. Continuing on in verse 7, it is for discipline. It is for this training that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? That's unheard of, Paul says. 
If you have a son, then you should be disciplining him. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. A father always disciplines his sons. And so if you're not being disciplined, you must not have a father. That's what the argument is here. You should not enjoy discipline, but at least be thankful that God is correcting you. Because if he didn't at all, if he didn't care, then you're not one of his to begin with. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. That's just a given in the ancient world, of course. And we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time. Again, this whole idea of training, paideia, correcting. Disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. So while we were in their home growing up, they disciplined us. But he, God, disciplines us for our good. So that we may share his holiness. God's discipline continues all the way through our whole life. We don't grow out of God's discipline. Until we reach ultimate perfection and holiness when we go to be with the Lord. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. Children, it's not fun when you get disciplined. It's not fun for us adults to be disciplined by God, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, if you've been trained by this discipline afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. It's good. It's good that your parents discipline you. Parents, it's good that you discipline your children. Because if you didn't, then you're not showing love towards them. So when Paul says, bring them up in the discipline, the training, yes, it has a, a corrective element. And that's much of what's going to happen. But it also has this idea of proactive. Show them the right way to live. Show them in scripture. Do it. And when they don't do it, correct them with physical punishment. Proverbs 19.20, listen to the counsel and accept discipline. That you may be wise the rest of your days. It's mostly what you don't do here in the New Testament. Showing your children what not to do, and when they do it, punish. It's the external. It's the spanking. It's the setting limits. It's saying, no, you cannot, you will not do that. Now, saying no is something that's often not heard of in many homes. To tell your child no. It's the most powerful word probably a parent can use. No. But of course, more challenging than that in our modern world is the idea of spanking. It's been called abuse. In some states, they've tried to outlaw it. In countries, they have outlawed it. You cannot spank your child in certain countries without getting fined or going to prison or having them taken away from you. And yet, here it is commanded in Scripture multiple times. Let's take a quick tour of Proverbs, starting in Proverbs 13. Proverbs 13, we have five or six verses that mention spanking here. With the rod. A rod was what we might call a switch. My grandma used to get a switch and threaten to get a switch out in the tree. A green switch that didn't break when she spanked. Really stung. Up to a paddle or even something larger here in the Old Testament. A rod. It's not iron rod, of course. That would be very painful. Proverbs 13, 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. So it's actually hating your son not to spank them. Hating your daughter not to spank her. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently, regularly. It happens regularly. It's actually hate if you don't discipline them. 19, chapter 19, verse 18. Discipline your son while there's hope. While they're still in your home. While there's hope. Because if you don't, what's going to happen? Well, it tells us in the rest of it. Discipline your son while there's hope. And do not desire his death. 
It's as if you're desiring his death. If you don't train him up, if you don't discipline him, if you don't correct him, sons and daughters, you're basically saying, you know what? I don't care. Do what you want. There's no consequences. No consequences to sin. No consequences to disobedience. Proverbs says here, it's like desiring their death. Chapter 22, verse 15. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Sometimes it's just for a moment. The child is corrected, they're disciplined, and they're going to turn around and be foolish again. But at least you're attempting to remove it far from him here. You're attempting to train them and correct them. And you're doing what the Lord commands. This is not an option. It's not just an opinion. God's not saying if you, if you like to spank, do it. If you don't, don't do it. No, it has to be done. It has to be done. 23, chapter 23, verse 13. Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. The goal is not to harm the child. They're going to feel it for a second or two and then it's done. That's not the goal. Although you strike him with the rod, he will not die. You shall strike him with the rod and rescue his soul from Sheol, from hell. Does a spanking save? No. It doesn't save a person. But what this is saying here is that by spanking them, you're training them on what is right and what is wrong. And if they already are saved, then you're helping them to live that out. If they already are a Christian. And if they're not, you're showing them the right path. And for many, this correction, this type of parental training and discipline leads them to understand who God is through the parents. Are the parents perfect like God? No. But does God have consequences for sin? Is there an eternal punishment for a child who sins and sins and sins and never trusts in Christ? Yeah. And so discipline trains them. Just like in Hebrews 12, he makes that analogy. Our earthly fathers disciplined us just like God disciplines us. We see over and over this idea in the family of the gospel. The way that Christ relates to the church and the church relates to Christ. The way that the church relates to the Father in heaven. Chapter 29 is the last one in Proverbs here. Verse uh, 17. Parents, you can't save your child. You can't make them have a changed heart. But God uses parents to bring about that. God uses parents to show them, to point them. Just like the law in the Old Testament points us to Christ, sends us to Christ. We see our own sin. Well, the parents are training and disciplining and pointing to Christ. 29.17 Correct your son and he will comfort you. He will give you comfort. He will also delight your soul. He'll grow up to be a better adult if you correct him when he's young. He'll grow up to be someone who will comfort you in your old age. Too many parents these days don't spank. It's not a joyful, fun thing to do. I don't like to do it. I don't like to take the time to do it. With a few kids in our home, it takes a lot of time sometimes to deal with it. If more than one are fighting, disobeying. But the wrong way to handle it is just to ignore it. Or, or to try to reason with your child and never spank them. If I can just reason with them. Reason, reason, reason with them. They just need more information. Then they'll get it and then they'll stop sinning. Does that ever work? Maybe if they're teenagers and you've stopped spanking them because they're too old for that. But when they're young, use the rod. Explain what they did wrong the reason they're getting punished and punish them. Not out of anger. Never out of anger. And never with a sinful heart. If you're, if you're upset with what they did, then cool off. Take some time before you spank them. And make sure that you're spanking them for a sin, not an accident. 
not an accident, but an actual sin, rebellion. You've clearly told them to do something and they didn't do it. And it needs to be felt to make an impression. Sometimes we have usually young boys to say, that doesn't hurt. You don't stop. Say, okay, I'm going to give you another one. And it's going to be harder. I'm going to give you two more. And it's going to be harder. And sometimes it seems like it goes on and on. But that's what the Bible calls us to do. We should want to do that. We love our children. Now, don't lose control when you discipline. You've crossed the line at that point. That's not what the scriptures are calling you to do. You're just provoking your children. Now, people say that's not kind. That's not loving. Spanking is not kind. It's not loving. Well, I have to say, is God unloving when he disciplines us? Because as adults, sometimes we've got to go through much harder things than a little swat on the behind where we have all this nice padding on the little kids. As adults, we have to go through painful things sometimes to be disciplined by God. It is loving. The Bible says it is. We read those passages. Well, others that are maybe a little bit more knowledgeable of Scripture say, well, you know, that's the Old Testament law. That's the Old Covenant. Spanking was in the Old Covenant, and we're under the New Covenant. Well, I'd point to Ephesians 6.4 here, where clearly the word paideia covers lots of corrective discipline. But also, this is Proverbs. This is wisdom. Ecclesiastes is wisdom. Job is wisdom. We don't look at Job and say, you know, that doesn't apply to us anymore. Whatever happened to Job can never happen to us because that's in the Old Covenant. No, wisdom books apply. Job's not even an Israelite. The Old Covenant hasn't even been given yet. And Job writes his book. This is King Solomon writing most of Proverbs. The proverbial sayings, general principles that apply to certain aspects of our life. These things haven't gone away. Wisdom literature. These are the wise things you do as a parent. The right things, the godly things, the wise things. Corrective discipline is important. Without it, your child's going to go his own way. The most famous proverb for training up a child, Proverbs 22.6. Let's have a look at it. You've probably been taught it one way, as a promise. You train up a child. If you discipline your child and you show them what's right, then when they're old, they're going to come back to that. Even if they wonder, even if they roam. But that's not what it says. Then the NASB is translated, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's the most famous verse on parenting in Proverbs. But it's misunderstood. It gives false hope to parents. Listen to the literal translation. Start out a youth according to his own way. Even when he is old, he will not turn from it. It's almost a little bit of irony, sarcasm. Let them go their own way when they're young. And when they're old, they're not going to turn away from it. See, it's not a promise now. It's a warning. Solomon recognizes that all humans are born with total depravity. And if a child just gets his own way and starts his own path, he's never going to grow out of that. Even when he's older, he will not have matured to the point that he should have. He'll continue to live a selfish life, a spoiled life. So the point here he's trying to make with this proverb is that he wants parents to see the negative here and do the opposite. Don't start him out in his own way because that's the way he'll just continue his whole life. Don't do that. Do the opposite. Show him a godly way. There's no promises that if you show him a godly way, he'll be saved and he'll necessarily be the most righteous person in the world. But at least you've shown him the godly way and not let him go his own way. So Solomon wants parents to see the negative here and do the opposite. Don't start him out that way. The biblical counselor, J. Adams, writes, The verse here stands not as a promise, but a warning to parents that if they allow a child to train himself after his own wishes, permissively, they should not expect him to want to change these patterns when he matures. Children are born sinners, and when allowed to follow their own wishes, will naturally develop 
sinful habit responses. The basic thought is that such a habit pattern becomes deep-seated when they have been ingrained in the child from the earliest days. It's exactly what Proverbs 19.18 says. Discipline your child while there's hope. While they're young, get them started. Correct them. You love them. You want them to follow the right path, not the wrong path. You're not a moralist for wanting that. You're a Christian, the Bible says. You're a follower of God. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. Do unbelievers correct and discipline their children? Yes. Thankful they do. What kind of society would we have? But we do it out of love. We do it out of a love because they're, they're our children and we're Christians. A Christian love. If you don't spank, if you don't correct, if you don't tell your children no, then they'll go their own way. And don't be surprised when they're older that they don't turn from it. Point number three, raise your children up in the Lord's admonition. Or raise them up in the Lord's admonition. By the way, the, the, the phrase here, of the Lord at the end, it modifies both the training, that word discipline, and the second word here, instruction, or what I'm calling admonition. It's the Lord's training. It's the Lord's admonition. He's already given it to us in Scripture. We saw him live a righteous life. We know what that looks like. He's commanded us in the New Testament and the Old Testament has, has given us principles. He's told us what to do. It's coming through the parents to the child. It's the Lord's though. This verse is not a promise that if you do these things, your children will be saved. It's saying you as a Christian parent are in the Lord. And the Lord is using you to train up your child if you're doing these things according to scripture. The Lord owns this instruction. We can think of it that way. He owns this admonition and it's coming through the parents to the child if the parents are obeying the Lord. So he finishes the verse and instruction of the Lord. Really, I think the translation should say admonition. So we have training and admonition. What is admonition? It's not explaining what the training is that he just mentioned. It's not continuing to get more specific about the training. It's an aspect that's parallel to the training. The training or discipline that we just saw is more external. What you do to correct the child externally. This is admonition. The word is nuthesia. It's the internal. It's the verbal. It's the mind. We get our word biblical counseling and the Greek is nuthetic. Nutheteo. Admonishing, warning, correcting them through their thinking with words. When you do biblical counseling, you do nuthetic counseling, you're admonishing them. The noun here, nuthesia, means to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. Verbally correcting and warning your child of the wrong they are doing and what will happen if they continue along this path. The spanking corrects them and teaches them immediately. But the words, the admonition shows them it's wrong. And what's going to happen if they continue along that path? It's asking them to think further out than just this one instance where they're getting in trouble. Verbally correcting and warning your children of the wrong they're doing and what will happen if they continue along this path. Used a couple of times in the New Testament, this noun. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction, Paul says. The whole Old Testament was written for our nuthesia, our instruction, our admonition. Upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Why should we read the Old Testament? Because it's a warning. What happens when you disobey God? Over and over Israel does that. It's a warning. Also Titus 3.10. Reject a factious man. 
after a first and second warning, Nuthasia warning. A man is factious. He tries to divide the church. You warn him twice. He's disciplined. He's rejected. The verb nuthateo comes up in Colossians 1.28. We proclaim him admonishing. There it is. Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We all should be admonishing. We all should correct people when they're sinning and we can help them. We all should be helping one another in that way. Counseling one another. Biblically. We see this verb used in the Septuagint of 1 Samuel 3.13. And in that context, it's used for parenting. You remember Eli the high priest, if you read 1 Samuel, Eli the high priest is letting his sons run wild. They're abusing women. They're partaking of the sacrifices outside of God's commands. They're basically getting fat on those sacrifices. Sexual immorality. And in chapter 3 verse 13, the same word is used here. When God says, for I have told them that I'm about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew because his sons brought a curse on themselves and he did not rebuke them. He did not admonish them. He did not tell them it was wrong and he did not tell them what was going to happen when God came to judge them. And so his whole lineage is going to be destroyed. He's the high priest. He will have no descendants upon the high priesthood. He failed to admonish his sons. He failed to counsel them. He failed to tell them what would happen if they continued in their sin. We've got to do this, parents. We've got to admonish our children. We've got to tell them, this is what happens if you continue to sin. We've got to give them godly advice, biblical counsel. Let me just give you three specific ways that we can admonish our children. First, we teach them what scripture says, and we explain the principles of God's law. They need to know. And sometimes we don't want to tell them. Sometimes we think it's too much for them. And maybe it is if they're two years old, they're not going to understand. But we shouldn't withhold what God expects. We think, well, that's not the gospel, you know. I read this one book, gospel-centered this, gospel-centered that, gospel grace parenting, whatever. And we're just supposed to sit down and just tell them the gospel. Well, Jesus used all of scripture, didn't he? All of it. Old And then, of course, he's proclaiming what what was written down in the New. We've got to teach them about God's law. Because if we don't know who God is, then they're not going to understand the gospel. They've got to understand who God is. That God created us perfect, and he expects us to live that way even after the fall. We sin through Adam. Adam chose to sin. After that, we're all born in sin. But we're expected to be perfect like our Father in heaven is perfect. Children need to hear that. Teach them the Bible. Teach them, like Paul says, the Old Testament even, so we can learn the warnings there. Don't think that's the church's job either, parents. Don't think it's the church's job to do that. We're here to help. We're here to help. We've got even classes for the kids to help. A Christian school is not going to do it either. That's not taking your role out of the picture. Parents, you still got to admonish and teach your children the Bible. Charles Spurgeon said, And he was a big proponent of children's Sunday school. He got it started in his church. He said, let no Christian parents fall into the delusion that the Sunday school is intended to ease them of their personal duties. The first and most natural condition of things is for Christian parents to train up their own children, train up their own children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's your job, parents. Schools aren't going to do it. We're teaching here all the time. But do you think in one hour they're going to get enough You think in one hour sermon, they're going to get enough? They're going to make sense of that sermon? No, you've got to go home and you've got to teach them what it meant. 
You've got to open it up. You've got to extend it. You've got to apply it. You've got to supplement it. You've got to be in the scriptures in your home throughout the week. Teach them the word. Do family worship, family devotions, whatever you want to call it. There's resources in the bookstore to help you figure out how to do that if you don't know. Start now. The main thing is that you do it. In the Old Covenant, Deuteronomy 6, these words, Moses writes, which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. All the time. Just teach the Bible to your kids. Let them know what God expects. Then they'll realize they can't meet that. Tell them that and point them to Christ. Secondly, praise them when they obey Scripture. Don't just be on them all the time when they disobey. Praise them when they obey Scripture. Encourage them. Let them know what you're seeing in them that's godly. Let them know where you've seen something positive, good in their life. And then thirdly, warn them when they disobey. So you have taught them what it is to obey God. You've encouraged them when they've done it. But now warn them with your words. Lovingly rebuke them. Especially important for teenagers. They're no longer getting probably the, the physical punishment. Warn them with your words. They must know. Children must know the consequences. They need to know about hell. They need to know what happens if we don't follow what God tells us. Jesus said this. He said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Instead, children here, God loves you unconditionally. No matter what you do. No matter what you do, God loves you unconditionally. Joel Osteen. We've got to tell them the truth. Don't be harsh. Be loving. Tell them the truth. Tell them about hell. A lot of young children have been converted just from hearing about hell and the consequences. They never realized that. You mean people are going to be punished eternally? Yes. We've got to tell them that. We can't hide that from them. Why would we want to hide that from? Jesus didn't hide that. He spoke quite a bit about eternal punishment. John and Charles Wesley's mom, she had 17 children. This woman did. She said this about raising children. The parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the saving of a soul. You're working with God, parents. She says the parent who indulges self-will, who lets the kid do whatever they want, does the devil's work, makes religion impractical, salvation unattainable, and does all that is in him to drown his child, soul, and body forever. Parents, if you've done poorly at this, just repent. Repent to your child if needed. But just repent to God and go after it again. Ask for the Lord's help. He is there for us. He is in us. He is with us. If you've not done this at all, start now. And no matter where you are or how old your children are, if they still live in your home, there's hope. There's time. Redeem the time. Charles Spurgeon says, If we never have headaches through rebuking our children, we shall have plenty of heartaches when they grow up. And he goes on to talk about just giving the first seven years of a child's life in a godly home with parents who care and discipline and train and admonish. Then that child is likely to grow up and understand the gospel, believe the gospel and follow Christ. So let's be godly parents. Let's do what God has called us to do. Let's not provoke. But instead, let's raise them up in the Lord's training and the Lord's admonition. Let's ask for God's help in that. God, help us as parents to live out your will here. Let's do what you say because we love you. We know that we can't earn your salvation. But if we're in Christ, we're already saved and we want to live out your commands. We want to 
do things that are pleasing to you. And we love our children. We want to see them saved. We want to see them come to know Christ. And you've set up a way for that. You've told us to train them and to admonish them. And I pray that every parent would hear this message and do what the passage commands. Because they love their child. We ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen.